this is a space that culturally, historically, is used to taking care of itself. Mm-hmm. So the gears of mutual aid clicked into fever pitch, like same day. There are people in the burn zone helping other people out of the burn zone while the fires are actively burning down things. It is much more quickly than I've seen that response in some other places. Saludos, this is Cristina Rivera, and I'm a minister at the Church of the Larger Fellowship, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you, hope it builds your faith, and hope it gives you perspective to experience the power of Unitarian Universalism at work in your life. Enjoy the message. Wepa. Greetings. Welcome to another episode of the Voices of Unitarian Universalism, the weekly talk show brought to you by the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Larger Fellowship, our congregation that goes beyond walls and spreads our love all over the world. It is so good to be here. My name is the Reverend Dr. Michael Tino. I'm one third of the lead ministry team of the Church of the Larger Fellowship. Hey, I'm Asia Hauser, and we are very excited about our guests. We have with us this week, the Reverend Dr. Gregory Carroll Boyd. Greg is a religious educator credentialed at the leadership level. He serves um, our UU congregation in Honolulu, Hawaii, as the Executive Minister of Religious Education. And he also serves our wider association as a member of the General Assembly Advisory Council. And Greg loves to dance and to spend time with the special young people in his life. In his free time, Greg conducts research about and writes religious education, racial justice, and sexuality education curricula. And it is just after now, six o'clock in the morning in Honolulu, Hawaii. And we are so glad Greg is able to be with us. Bless you, dear one, for getting up before dawn. And we brought you here mostly to talk about UU responses to disaster relief following the horrendous wildfires in Lahaina, Maui. But let's start with the General Assembly Advisory Council. What is that, Greg? I can do that, Michael. So the General Assembly Advisory Council is something that our wonderful director of General Assembly and Conference Services, Latanya Richardson at our UUA, put together last year. It is a kind of new response to having the General Assembly Planning Committee that used to have decision-making authority over every single thing that happened at at GA or large swaths of it. This time it is purely a staff advisory council uh, where, okay, what's the history of this? Why are we doing this thing? Those types of things. So it was really awesome to to serve with folks like uh, Reverend Mark Lee Belazare and Meg Riley made meetings. Elizabeth Mount, also on the board of trustees, was able to make meetings. Various folks from the different care teams. It was really, all right, we know that things happen for a reason and we know that they happen a certain way let's vet everything we say before we put it out in public uh, to make sure that we have the widest possible understanding of how this might impact folks before we even send it out and so it was a lovely experience this past year whether or not it continues in this year i haven't received any information just yet but i'm prayerful that it will because i definitely enjoyed the experience and i think that latanya benefited well from having a dedicated group of people to be able to bounce ideas off of or ask curious questions about why didn't this land the way that we thought it was going to, yada, yada, yada. Excellent. Well, that seems like the best parts of the General Assembly Planning Committee without site visits to convention centers and that sort of nonsense. 
And I know that you were on the General Assembly Planning Committee before being on the UA board. And so I'm glad that you're still serving in, in that capacity. And brings um, me joy. Thank you, Michael. But let's talk about responses to the disaster in Hawaii. How are Unitarian Universalists connected to the response and helping the people there? Yeah, wonderful. So again, I'm Greg. I I live on the island of Oahu. I've been studying Hawaiian since I moved here. It is the land of the native Hawaiians who are still here. That is not the name that they gave themselves. They just call themselves Nahawai'i, the Hawaiians. And they're very much still here, 150,000 strong after 300,000 at the point of European conflict back in the 1700s. The UU response has been absolutely tremendous especially in the early weeks we're entering week eight post wildfires it was august 8th when the fires first started swiftly moving and it took us a few weeks to get things under control one of the things i think is important sometimes is while most of the damage was on maui there were wildfires on other islands particularly there were some on the big island the island of hawaii there were also infrastructural damage that happened to other islands. So like Molokai is serviced by a cell phone tower that was in Lahaina, right? So damage that happened on Maui affected other smaller islands like Lanai and Molokai. Lanai is privately owned, but Molokai actually has residents that live on it. So it's been a huge shock to our system. We're certainly continuing to cover it all the time. But I had colleagues, I had congregations still reaching out to me, still reaching out to our congregation about how to help. Early on, I advised to make sure that funding went to the UU Disaster Relief Fund because our congregation will be applying for grants of up to $50,000 are available for projects that help us work with other first responding groups. Our congregation specifically decided to be second wave responders, because we know that this is going to be a multi-year recovery effort and that a lot of the, the money and assistance would come in within the first weeks and months. Uh, we're in here for the long haul because these are our folks over on the neighbor islands. Uh, Maui is a 35 minute flight from Oahu and it's about 80 land miles. That's the work that we're doing, but I, I've got to say the letters, the voicemails, the personal connections were so helpful because things were moving very quickly at first that they've settled a little, but there's so much more to do. We know that over a hundred people died. This is our deadliest wildfire in the history of the islands. It's the deadliest wildfire in the history of the nation, as far as we know as well. And people have started going back to their homes in the burn zone just in the past couple of days. The government has cleared folks to do that, but the air might still be toxic. We don't know how poisoned the groundwater is. There are animals that lost their lives too, and we don't know what it's like for them to rehabitat those places. And because we're so geographically isolated, much of our economy, especially the economy of Maui, is dependent on tourism. So the governor has opened up the island to tourism again starting October 8th. And this is mainly to save jobs of people on Maui. But it's not really a great time to do that. And so here's how capitalism and environmental racism are coalescing to create an even more seductive problem that we have to figure out how to face boldly and 
in a values-based way. This is where I feel like, because there is that tension, but it's tension that was created by colonization. This need for tourism has been created by what, especially entities like Dole and people who ravish the land. This is where I would say reparations comes in. There should be no reason that Hawaii has to open up for Maui or any part for tourism, really anytime, but especially after something and, you know, my radical self, the government should be handing over money instead of saying we need to open for tourism because that's the only way a place so harmed and damaged as a result of climate change. There's so many dots to connect here. But Greg, I'm curious about the discourse about tourism because it's so insidious, but what is it that you're hearing from folks who are, I hate saying both sides about anything, but there doesn't seem to be consensus among people from Hawaii, indigenous people, and there doesn't seem to be consensus about whether or not people should be going there. Yeah, you know, I, I get this question routinely. It was not one of the ones that I anticipated getting when I, I relocated here to serve this congregation and are, I'm hoping to continue here and establish it as my home as I learn more and more about the culture. There, there isn't consensus. There, there is a loud group of Native Hawaiian and Hawaiian activists uh, that are saying, don't come here, don't don't vacation here, you don't need to do this, you don't need to do that. Um, and the, the fact of the matter, this is one of three states that is majority POC. Uh, we're about 40% Asian. Our largest multiracial group is triracial, Native Hawaiian, Asian, and white. And there are a variety of different perspectives. The majority of our legislature is also people of color and indigenous people, both Native Hawaiians and folks from other Polynesian islands who have genetic ancestry ties that go back thousands and thousands of years. If you've seen the movie Moana, you understand how Polynesians populated all the various islands. That's only lightly altered from the true history of the people and how they got here. No less musical either. I'm not going to lie about that. There was a lot of singing as they, they sailed across all those islands using celestial navigation. Polynesians are the best celestial navigators in the world. That All this is to say, there is not one perspective on this. I'm generally of... I would love us not to be so dependent on tourism that's been a byproduct of runaway capitalism and imperialism. I lived in Los Angeles for seven and a half years before I relocated here. And what that experience taught me about in a way that I didn't experience growing up in central Pennsylvania is what it really means to live in an occupied space. Southern California and many parts of the West are definitely still occupied Mexico. The, the culture is often very different than the government structures that are there. Here, as we move further and further west in the indigenous erasure project, right, we just kind of run out of steam. Like they were, were, they were never able as fully to wipe out the native Hawaiians, not for lack of trying. Well, let's be clear, not for lack of trying. They, they declared war, they outlawed hula, they outlawed the language. The language has only been legal to teach in school since 1984. It was banned since 1898. Yeah. Yeah. It's very recently we are undoing mostly through third and fourth generation folks who grew up without speaking Hawaiian in the home, revitalizing the culture. Now Hawaiian is one of the 
native languages of this place. You know, all legal documents are also published in Hawaiian. It's a really tremendous story of indigenous revitalization efforts. Along with that comes, again, for thousands of years pre-European contact, folks were able to live here sustainably and, and in ways that didn't require anyone coming except for occasionally other Polynesians. There is a way that this land, these islands that have animacy, uh, according to Native Hawaiian spirituality, can live in harmony. There, there are ways to not overfish. There, there are ways to keep the oil on the ground. All branches of the military are here, again, because this is an occupied space. This is the only state capital I've ever lived in where it is rare to see a U.S. flag. You see U.S. flags on the military bases and at the state capitol because it is a state capital. But I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, also a state capital. Many more U.S. flags in that place are here. So all of this gives us a sense of place. Just to answer the question again, no, there's not one definitive perspective on whether tourists should be coming here. What I usually state, again, as someone who's been here for a few months, the way that I understand what's being portrayed, even by the folks that are most vocally saying don't come here, is it is different if you're coming here for a vacation in Waikiki versus coming here to learn about the culture, learn the language, to repair harm done by hundreds of years of European colonization, imperialism, and mistreatment. Learning about the fact pineapple doesn't come from Hawaii. All right. Pineapple is a Caribbean fruit. It was brought over here by the Portuguese. The Hawaiian word for pineapple, halakahiki, actually means foreign fruit because they brought it over by accident. It just grows really well here. <laughs> so if you're coming here to learn that stuff, there's a different perspective on whether you should be here at all or if you can like, all right, you stay. And I'm also going to be point blank. They're mostly talking to white folks. A lot of y'all don't have any to be here again unless you've been invited but wait for that invitation it might not ever come oh it might not ever come i appreciate the framing of living on occupied land and and pointing out how mexican southern california is that is that that blew my mind a little bit i'm like yeah i never lived in southern california i've never lived anywhere in california but, not, but i visited southern california quite a few times different places and it is an occupy. That is deep, deep thoughts by Greg. And, and it so, is different, isn't it? And so in terms of the wildfires and the recovery, you're now in that period where sustaining the energy, everyone's like, oh, wildfires, help. We're going to help. We're going to help. We're... And then it's eight weeks later and everyone's like, oh, what happened in Hawaii? And if people are just going back to see what remains of houses there's going to be a lot of need there. I have a friend who just returned from a deployment with the Red Cross. She's a disaster mental health psychologist. So she was providing mental health services to people. And she's like, it was hard. And so now I'm getting a little context for why, if people are just coming back to their homes. So what kinds of things are the folks in Honolulu hoping to provide? You said you wanted to apply for a grant to be second responders. 
what's the hope? Yeah, so the, the largest organization doing this work, uh, the Hawaii Community Foundation Maui Strong Fund, which, you know, had a million dollars within two days and continues to get money, has just switched. They have a four-phase plan, and they've just switched to the, the second phase, which much more about uh, resilience and sustainability. And all the work we're trying to do, we're trying to get ready for the next disaster, right? There will always be a next disaster. And so we're, we're trying to prepare for that. What we found out, and I didn't anticipate this because disasters on the continent work in a slightly different pattern, cash is still needed. When we were sending a lot of supplies, and some of those supplies ended up not being used or the more perishable one waited and waited for weeks or spoiled and those types of things. What's really needed still is cash. So I say this because this is an easier way for people on the continent to help out. You don't have to come here. You don't have to deploy people. Obviously, if you're a medical professional or you work in mental health care, whether or not you have a board certification through a medical organization, you might have a different type of certification. Folks like that are needed. You can always connect with the Maui Strong Fund folks. They'll get you to some of the other mutual aid organizations. There are a bunch of organizations on the island of Maui and throughout our chain of islands that are continuing to coordinate need and resources. And so that's working well. And I, I think you pointed out, Michael, one of the things that we see in Hawaiian culture in particular is there's a cultural stoicism, right? There's a kind of we'll get through this and so the depth of the mental health need is not yet known and might not be known for quite a while because again culturally it's not something that comes to the fore very quickly there are going to be a variety of different needs but cash can help with all of those things and that is not generally been my approach to disaster recovery, but that's what I'm hearing is needed. And um, obviously through the UUA Disaster Relief Fund, the way I understand how those funds get distributed, I might be wrong, is not that we can just give cash. So we're specifically looking to partner with organizations that are doing some of that. How are you coordinating the work? How can we assist you maybe on the management side of that type of work? So we'll see what's needed. We're still working that through our social justice council in terms of what we have capacity to do, but the money is there. All we ever have to do is apply for it. And I've contacted the folks at the fund to know that we are planning to apply for it. So it's just a matter of us getting to those funds rather than not being able to figure out what to do. I so appreciate just the honesty of like send cash. I, I have to say people are like, well, we want to send and baby blankets and like bottles of water and, and the folks in Hawaii are like, no, actually just cash would be good. Thank you. It's a state. It's a, you know, For better or worse, we've got a lot of U.S. federal infrastructure really coming to bear. And again, that's occupied space. So the military is already here. Our delivery pipeline for getting those needs met quickly was already here. Many of the bases are here on the island of Oahu, but there are military okay. bases on the island. So there, there's ways to make sure that we have what we need. And we did. Uh, both the governor and the president worked very effectively together very quickly to get FEMA here, to get cash here, to get the resources here. And we have an indefinite promise of that type of aid. I, I think of that in counterpoint to ongoing recovery from Hurricane Maria on the island of Puerto Rico. And 
it's it's a very different response, different administration, different relationship to this imperialist beast we call our nation. Well, and Hawaii is a military strategic. I mean, that's why we even are there, even from when it began. So I have a total snarky question. Were Oprah and The Rock dragged as badly in Hawaii as they were here? for they can each write a check to help i don't know do you even know what i'm talking about they put out this i do yeah it it was not quite as bad here because we were in it we were aware we know they live there celebrities living on island is not such a rare thing there's a lot of love for jason momoa who is an island boy and all, all that good stuff but the rumor mill that this is even making the rounds on public radio there were a lot of rumors going around that oprah and the rock were burning down maui so that they could increase the sizes of their seats yes oh yes my these are actual rumors that perpetuated and that like fema is trying to manage they are trying to manage the, these particular rumors so no the the dragging wasn't quite as bad but obviously the awareness that they could have helped more and more quickly is known and again this is a space that culturally historically is used to taking care of itself mm-hmm. and so the gears of mutual aid just clicked into fever pitch so quickly like same day there are people in the burn zone helping other people out of the burn zone while the fires are actively burning down things right so it it is much more quickly than i've seen that response in some other places and again that's one of the reasons that this is a place that is prepared we have a two to three day survival strategy if we're ever cut off from the continent. We are trying to get more and more self-sustaining out here because we cannot be dependent on shipping and planes in times of increasing climate change and climate disaster. So we're exercising that more and more as we learn how, as we start to grow more and more of the staple crops, many things that Native Hawaiians traditionally ate, like sweet potato, specifically like purple sweet potato and taro are not mostly grown on island. They are imported. And this is a problem. (laughs) This is a real problem. So just agriculturally, the colonizer crops have pushed out the food that indigenous people have survived on for tens of thousands of years there. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, that's one of the things that's implicated in the Maui wildfires in particular, grass from other places. Mm -hmm. Our grass doesn't get as dry, so it doesn't burn as easily. Certainly wildfires do happen here naturally. These are volcanic islands. There was an eruption on the big island just a couple weeks ago. This is a place that is actively still forming the actual ninth island. We lovingly refer to Las Vegas as the ninth island because Hawaiians love Vegas. It is actually the place with the third most Hawaiians in the world. LA, then Honolulu, then Vegas. It's easy to live there, so lots of families as they're getting priced out of being able to live on the island, relocate to other population centers of Hawaiians, which are mostly LA County and Las Vegas. And Lahaina is on the dry side of Maui. So I'm just guessing that if wildfires happen on Maui, they tend to happen on that side of the island. Yes, yes. The record shows that. And obviously, something that sometimes gets lost is we forgot that there was the hurricane at the same time, right? So there there were hurricane-force winds that were propelling the fire even faster than normal. If only one of those things have happened, the disaster would not nearly be the scale that it is. But this is the nature of climate change. We can have simultaneous climate-related events 
at the same time. And this is normal now. This is normal now. So how do we deal with that? Greg, I have a question about one of the things that we heard about, and I don't know if this was part of the rumor mill or how pervasive this was, but already there were, I'm going to call them ghouls, people who wanted to kind of predators to buy people's homes. So one of the things I picture you use doing is like, call the state legislature in Hawaii. I don't know if there's a, a way to legally protect folks from being preyed upon by ghouls trying mm -hmm. to take advantage of a horrific situation. And I'm wondering if there's any attention paid to that. Yeah, this is active in our state legislature uh, right now and, and with our governor, uh, Josh Green, who's doing a great job, but also in a lot of different circumstances that sometimes we don't have to make these decisions in after a disaster. So there was a plan. We had actually just passed a law that would make it easier to go around certain environmental regulations to build more housing. Oh. We're like many high market housing areas where I, I like to say this again about LA because the housing scenario is so similar out here. In, in LA, very frequently, there was not always so much a housing shortage as there was an affordable housing mm -hmm. shortage. And some things are similar here. There, there are actually fewer houses than we need for bodies here. Some of that has to do with uh, cultural perspectives on how we live together. Um, Polynesian cultures in general have more generations in smaller spaces that that's just a, a cultural product that they bring. It's not good, bad, right, wrong. It's just a thing, right? And so that that's meant that over decades, we have not kept up with rising size of population, especially as more people have relocated from the continent or from other territories where they expect to live in single family dwellings or expect to live less densely. So in July, we had just passed something that would allow us to build more housing more readily in Maui in particular. And then the wildfires happened. And so there was a huge backlash around, no, 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 no. We're not going to start these environmental regulations. You're not going to take our homes, which is what that was seen as at that time. According to the government, no, that was never the plan. That's not what we meant. The director of housing has since resigned and the governor is working with other people to work on that. But yeah, we're in a volatile situation around what's the appropriate response to housing people, to building housing, to building sustainably so that we can maintain this chain of islands that has survived for thousands of years with human habitation and didn't have these problems until the last few hundred, right? These are new problems that we're dealing with that are the byproducts of disaster capitalism. There's no way to get around that. I'd say one of the other issues is, like many, especially here in Honolulu, one of the issues that we sometimes run into is that there is an actual war on the homeless instead of a war on poverty and marking up real estate, right? And so th this is a place, again, like LA, where they're sometimes throwing away people's tents or passing increasingly more restrictive laws. I live in Waikiki. My best neighbors are sometimes that the houseless folks who are making sure that they know they're like auntie down the street. They, they know Everyone who belongs here, they know who the tourists are and aren't. They're they're looking out uh, for all the things we need. And I'll glibly say, yeah, keep the property values low so people can live here. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs>
I've preached a lot about how in the Americas and in Hawaii, Alaska, I think the estimates are somewhere between 12 and 14,000 years humans lived in harmony with the land. And I said this in front of someone who's a little more to the right than me who said, oh, well, they were fighting each other. I said, I didn't say they lived in harmony with each other. I said they lived in harmony <laughs> with the land. The water stayed clean. <laughs> It was not this, you call it disaster capitalism. We need to stop saying capitalism. This isn't farmer's market capitalism that's fucking everything up. It's disaster capitalism. It's vinyl extractive capitalism. We need to name it what it is. Thank you very much. Yes, yes, precisely. What is the biggest thing that surprised you moving to Hawaii? <laughs> I, I say this a lot. How much it was like L.A.? I I felt like I hadn't moved at all. People were just like, are you like really in culture shock? And I'm just like, no, this feels, the surf culture is the same. Again, with LA being the, the largest population of native Hawaiians right now, right? So culturally they're becoming more and more similar. People are a lot more laid back. They're even more chill than they are in Southern California. I grew up black, and so I was used to taking off my shoes to go into people's homes, and people were just like, was that weird for you? I'm just like, no, I'm finally living in a place where the cultural norms support what I grew up with, as opposed to that awkward moment when I go into someone else's house. Am I supposed to? I don't just want to be in my socks if you don't want me in my socks. I know that can be, you know, but no, here, even if people live in a house, you take off your shoes before you enter their house. There's a place to put your shoes. So I really liked that. And I was not prepared for just how prepared I already was <laughs> to live here. There are also some other things on that, the actual shock and awe side. These lands are stunningly beautiful. Stunning. Just primordially beautiful. Just rocking cliff faces you can't imagine. Really good policies around development that have kept large swaths of all of the islands just wild. They, they, they are just passable types of cliffs and trees and vegetation. It rains every day. There, there are rainforests within navigable distance. There, there are black sand beaches on the big island because Pele has come down and touched the ocean. Pele is our volcano goddess. And there are signs that say, don't disturb Pele, do not take the sand. Uh, the amount of connection and the depth of connection that even people who weren't raised here feel to maintaining the, the wildness of this space, the primordial beauty, the primordial understanding that this land goes back further than human imagination. And, and one of the foundational texts in Hawaiian spirituality is uh, the Kumulipo, which tells a very different creation story from many of the others that you'll hear around the world that talks about the creation of the, the dark and the not so dark and the very light and very different versions of understanding how all of the sea creatures came to exist. Things that lead me to believe that the native Hawaiians watched more than one of the islands actually form and wrote about it in the poetry that is so characteristic of the Hawaiian language. It's a language that has 13 letters and words that 
the same word can mean 20 different words. And so there's mm-hmm. a way that they've storied these islands into being and the language itself harmony with the natural world so that was something i really wasn't prepared for it's a beautiful place to live in that's beautiful from a cultural level from you know a panentheistic level everything has spirit here and a place that is still being created before our eyes we can see the volcanic shoot that's forming the ninth island that will be here in a few thousand years but that's not the way it looks a lot of other places we don't always see that we are still forming and so is the world. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, I did a little bit of study of native Hawaiian spirituality in the context of eco-justice ethic and just that notion that not only does everything have spirit, the rocks and the ocean and the mountains and the volcanoes and the trees and the but everything is related to us. They are our siblings in certain ways. And so there's a connection that is not just, oh, that's gorgeous, but, oh, that's my gorgeous sibling. Mm -hmm. And it's palpable there. Mm -hmm. I haven't been in 15 years, and I can still remember it. One of the things that even made me consider this posting when our congregation here on island uh, was looking for potentially someone who could do both religious education and regular preaching was that I'd had my own mystical experiences with this space. I just felt so deeply connected to nature and I could hear ancestors' voice calling to me. And not my own ancestors, the, the, the island ancestors were having a dialogue with me that I'll be honest, it scared me. I was raised in a humanist congregation and I was having a deeply mystical experience that happened more than once. And I was not fully prepared. It's one of those moments where I had to logic my way through it. I was just like, well, I say I believe these things can happen and now it is happening. And so I guess it's happening, but it's a place where I went to nature camps as a preteen and adolescent and I've grown more deeply connected to nature throughout my lifetime, even though I'm primarily metropolitan. Slap me in any city and send me to the club. It's what I want to do. Uh, but you know, I will still occasionally go for a hike or like a rock creek swim, those types of things. And what you're bringing up, Michael, one of the tales in Native Hawaiian spirituality is about tarot being the brother of man, uh, which might have its roots in, uh, again, where the poetry ends and the truth-telling begins is often not important <laughs> to Hawaiian culture. It's, can you get truth out of the story is more important than whether the story is true or not. That's what they'll tell you in a variety of different ways. But we believe that story is related to one of the elite, a queen, one of the chiefs who had a child who was stillborn and then planted that child in a tarot crop. And so we now have a relationship, humans and tarot, together because of that. So the word kapua, which means flower, also means offspring because of that relationship. I one trip to Maui in my whole life. Uh, nope, not Maui. Oahu. Actually, the UUA sent a group of people and the United Church of Christ to, it was a training of trainers. Is that right? Training of trainers for our whole lives. So I was there in 2018, 17? Yeah, one of those. 
What a Maybe. horrible assignment that you had to take. I got jury duty about a week before I was supposed to go. And I just put, I have a hardship. So the judge, because she was bored that day, started asking me questions. She goes, well, what's your hardship? I said, well, I have to go to a training. Well, what's your training? I said, well, like sexuality education. She goes, and where is the training? And I'm like, Hawaii. She went, where? And I'm like, um, Hawaii. And she goes, well, that doesn't sound like a hardship. <laughs> it's the one and only training that may not happen for another 10 years. Can I please go? You're on. I did not give that much sass, I assure you, because I wanted to get my ass to Hawaii. So after the whole courtroom laughed at that, she gave me the hardship and I did not have to miss the training of trainers in Oahu. And it was truly spectacular. So it was really, yeah. Back to the, that sort of sacred, the mystical experience. There are any number of places that I've been where the place mm -hmm. has felt to me imbued with a spirit that is palpable there. And, and Apali, which is right up the road from Lahaina, is one of those places that where it's almost startling. Yes. To feel it. Yes, you're having a conversation with ancestors that are not yours. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that <laughs> that way of looking at it because that definitely is what it felt like. Yeah. Um, and, and they'll make themselves known because again, thousands of years of living in this space that is their home with, with no shame, uh, with no European referent, with that type of stuff. And I'm glad you brought up the UCC, Asia, because obviously they're part of this story. We, we're all part of this story during the period pre-Unitarian heresy. We were doing a lot of the work of being missionaries on these islands together. And so United Church of Christ congregations are celebrating sometimes 200 years on island. And so this has made news recently about like yeah so let's talk about what that means and why we're here so well one of the things that we've run into is the united church of christ and then the unitarians primarily the the universalists did not really have um a stronghold out here their their missionary efforts were primarily restricted to the continental u.s right you know what their missionary work was moving out west into the prairies during the same period as the unitarians and the united church of christ then just congregationalists are doing work here on the island the Bible exists in Hawaiian because we took Native Hawaiians and brought them to Harvard. Again, the seminary that Congregationalists uh, decided to form. And, and so we're a deep part of this history and we're dealing with the fact that, yes, even here, the doctrine of discovery, which gave Europeans large access, uh, according to the Catholic Church, to lands of non-Christian peoples, informs federal and public policy here the, the same doctrine was why the u.s felt that it could imperialize this place yes there, there were uh, indigenous schools we, we took native hawaiians from their lands and put them in state-run schools often religiously run the ucc the united church of christ did that more here than we did our schools where we did that as unitarians were primarily in utah that's where we ran um indigenous schools. And again, this project went on to the 1960s, 1970s. And as I mentioned earlier in our chat, it was illegal to speak Hawaiian in schools until 1984, which is something that the territorial governorship enforced. In, in Isha mentioned earlier about Dole. One of the issues we have here is 
Hawaiians were some of the most educated people in the world pre-European contact. At, at the point of the Europeans really starting to exert influence over here, there were something like 200 native Hawaiian newspapers. The queen had made sure that there was literacy. They redesigned the teaching of the language around the Japanese syllabary. So there's something we call the hakalama, which is how every possible syllable combination that exists in Hawaiian is taught to preschoolers. And so at a moment's notice, if you're literate in Hawaiian, you can read any word. Uh, you, you don't have to decipher it. There are no silent letters uh, in Hawaiian. Uh, they've made it uh, point blank and explicit. Again, highly literate people that were not allowed to utilize their culture uh, by law, but also they had seen to it only Native Hawaiians were allowed to own land. So the robber barons of the late 19th and early 20th centuries started marrying into Hawaiian families and then stole their land. So yes, the Dole family are Hawaiians because they married a Hawaiian family and that's how they got their land. Well, we could probably tell these stories and delve into the culture of Hawaii and Native Hawaiians and the history of colonization there and the consequences we could probably make this a four-hour show and still be talking at the end of it. Gladly. And yet it is 12.59 p.m. here on the East Coast. It looks like the sun has come up there yeah. in Honolulu. This has brought us to the end of another episode of the Voices of Unitarian Universalism. We are so thankful that you have Thank been you, Greg. with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give generously to this ministry. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit clfuu.org backslash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review so that others can find us. Thanks again for listening.